Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Quest for You. This week, I'm finally bringing you my good friend Dre and his fascinating quest story. Dre, unfortunately, was my last interview before the shelter-in-place order took in effect. And as you know, I just had really gotten into interviews. My goal was to bring them to you regularly. And I did all of them in person because I enjoyed specifically that aspect of interviewing. Meeting people where they are. Even people I've never met before. Because a friend introduced us and I had the opportunity to meet them. I had a list of people I was planning to visit with and record their stories. Now I have to change that strategy. And yes, I am considering interviews via Skype And I ordered a part that I need for that weeks ago, and hopefully it arrives next week. And I know this will open the doors for interviewing people in all parts of the world, but today's interview will also show you the uniqueness of being with someone in person. And let's not forget this. As we're social distancing, I'm afraid we're going to forget about how good it feels to sit across from someone and... Not just look into their eyes, but also see everything else that's going on. Their gestures, their their environment, most importantly. I interviewed Dre in his barbershop in East Oakland. And we talked for a long time. Too long to fit into one episode. So today is only part one. And I remember that evening quite fondly. Maybe because it was in person. And I don't spend much time in person with people anymore. I'd looked forward to visiting Dre at his shop for a long time. And I insisted on doing the interview there, knowing quite well that it would be noisy and more difficult to edit for me later. But I wanted to see him in his environment, in his element, so to speak. And you'll hear the background noise, but I believe that this added some character to the recording. And with that comes my forewarning. He had customers still there as I walked in, even though it was already late in the evening. And I did start recording while Dre is working, so you'll hear the noise of the razors in the background. At least in today's episode. I'll cut this interview into two, maybe even three parts. I haven't decided yet. But this first part, where Dre is still working, and before we sit down, which you'll hear in the next episode, is too important for me to cut out. I left it in. I wanted to leave it in. And I wanted you to hear it. So imagine me standing next to him as he is working on his client. After the first minute or so, I turn on the second mic. And you'll hear it as I hold it up close to Dre. And so he talks as he works. Although he turns off the razor many times, which allows you to hear a bit more clearly. But I do feel bad this entire time while I'm there for his client, who probably got home much later than he planned because of me. Dre shares a lot of personal information about his life, and I really encourage you to listen through despite the less than optimal audio quality. Dre, although he never says so, didn't have an easy life. But what I find so fascinating about him is his incredible drive to make his life better. And this characteristic led him first to the area that was easiest and came natural for him, the streets. But he didn't stop there. 
It was merely a stepping stone for him. He learned not only about finances, but he also built a strong character that today makes him such a successful entrepreneur. I follow him on Instagram, and Dre is always making and selling something. And no, it's not drugs anymore. Most recently, it's face masks, which shows you his spirit of ingenuity. Dre knows how to adapt. He understands that life changes, and he changes with it. So please, take some time and listen to this first part of my interview with Dre. If you're struggling to hear, hang in there. We do get into some of the same topics later on, when he's done working, and those will be better to hear. And I'll bring you those later in the week. Here is a true quest story for you. And I encourage you, because I also did it. Try to listen for the lessons that resonate with you. Right now, we're all struggling to adapt to changing circumstances. So how can we pivot and make this time work for us and not allow it to hold us back? Enjoy. Much love and I'll talk to you soon. Did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood called it's called Dag. We call it Dagville. So um, it's over. It's down 98th Avenue, mm -hmm. over the ramp, like you're going towards the Oakland Airport. And if you make the first right, as soon as you come over the ramp, you're going into my neighborhood. That's mm -hmm. where I grew up at. And I, you mentioned earlier about in school you got into. Selling oh, drugs. Gonna get right into I'm it, gonna okay. get right into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, I did. Why? Um, my fam I grew up poor, and in Oakland, it was kind of hard to like, I don't know, survive in like the '80s. At least so I thought as a teenager. And my mother, she was on drugs. My grandparents was raising me, but. I had a little brother and a little sister, and my mom was raising them. But so my mom was on drugs. So my sister, when she got to junior high, she became painfully aware of how she was dressing. So since my mom was using all the money, 
her personal drug use, basically it wasn't no money for the kids, my sister and my little brother. So my sister said, I'm not gonna go to school. I'm just gonna drop out of school. And I was like, that was crazy. She was like going to the seventh or the eighth, seventh grade, I think. And she was gonna drop out of school because she was tired of being ridiculed about wearing the same clothes every day. So my friends were already selling drugs. So basically I just jumped in to the dope game basically to make enough money to buy her some school clothes. But I made that light in one day. And <laughs> it was like I just I was like I made so much money to the point where I felt like I can't quit now. Then I was I told myself, well I'm gonna make ten grand, then I'm gonna stop. I made that in a month. Then it got to a point where I say, well, I'm gonna get up to where I can cop a kilo, a kilo of cocaine, right? And then I start doing that. Then I was like, I'm gonna get 10 and 20 and keep going like that. But everything was moving so fast to the point where, well, maybe I should slow down a little bit. It didn't really go that fast because in these streets you take, you have extreme highs and you have extreme lows. So you take losses and you take a lot of wins, but you take a lot of losses too. So how do you wait? How do you take losses? So, for example, you can get robbed. You oh. can go to jail. Police come and say you got drugs on you. You might throw them. Yeah. And then run. Come yeah. back. The drugs gone. And that might be like worth a thousand dollars, two thousand. Hell, it might be a kilo worth like back then a kilo was going for like fifteen five, fifteen thousand five hundred dollars. So you might throw that like say you in the car. Got it on you, got it on you, or whatever. Police pull you over, or make an attempt to pull you over. You bend a couple of corners, and you try to get away with it. But if you can't get away with it, you're gonna put it down somewhere, throw it down somewhere, and then hopefully, if you get away, come back and get it. Sometimes, and that has happened to me before. I come back, it's gone. Meaning somebody saw me running from the police in the high-speed chase, saw where I went, knew who I was, knew what I was doing. After the police left and cleared the scene they went back there found it before i came back so i took a loss yes makes so, sense. right how did you know as a school kid who to sell drugs to oh, my neighborhood was like infiltrated with drug oh, dealers yeah. and drug addicts <laughs> totally different world. Oh, different world than what you come from huh? <laughs> right oh my god um how long did you do this for into your adult life i assume you know, so I think um, from the time I was 18, so like from 1988 to like 96. 96 is when I caught a, a, a federal and a state case. And then that basically shut down my whole uh, drug career. Hmm. <laughs> but there was a lot of lessons you learned in this. Because I'm looking, you know, you have you've written a book. Oh, right. You yeah. know about money really well. Somewhat. Yes, you do. <laughs> I know a little bit, not much. I'm very, I'm, I'm learning as I go. A lot of things that I've done worked out for me, no doubt. But it's a combination of termination and luck. <laughs> you don't believe that? <laughs> no, I do. I do. I think it's about being at the right place at the right time. It's a little bit of that. A little yeah. bit of that, but I also think a lot of it is who you are, what you, you know, determination, your drive, which... Right. Uh, uh, and you know what? A lot of this is, like, based on 
your ability to make decisions. You won't be too successful if you don't have a good decision, like, mechanism working for you. Like, you have the ability to make a good sound decision. Like, you know how to weigh the pros and the cons, and you can get straight to the thing that can get you to the next level or that can get you close to the next level. See, a lot of people don't do that. They just rush into a situation without weighing out the possibilities. Mm -hmm. I weigh out, this is what I do. I look for, like, what can go wrong? And if I can live with what can go wrong, then that don't mean that it's going to go wrong. But if I can live with the possibility, for example, um, investing in real estate. So I, say I invest, I want to buy a property. But it needs a lot of work. I don't know if the market is going to go up or if it's going to go down. And then I buy this property and then I invest all this money off in it. I'm thinking, what if I buy this property and I put all this money in and then... The market crashes. Then it turns into something else. Especially if I was buying a property, say the flip. Meaning I'm gonna buy it, fix it up, and then sell it, and then move on to the next and, and repeat, right? So if I can live with the fact that the market might crash while I'm rehabbing this property, and I might not get what I put into it, which means, in essence, I have more options, though, because I can turn around and rent it out. If I'm willing to become a landlord and deal with that, then, yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. But if I can't, then I won't do it. Mm-hmm. Most people don't do that. They just rush in. Oh, such and such is doing it like this, so I'm going to do it like that. And then when they go bad and they run into a roadblock, they quit. So you imagine kind of, is it kind of like you're playing worst-case scenario? You're imagining what could be the worst-case scenario, and you come to terms with that. Does yes. that sound right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the worst case, and if I can deal with it, I'm with it. Did you learn that during the drug dealing? Did that come from there? Um, I think the experience of being in the game taught me that. Yeah. And I've always been like aware. I see things that most people wouldn't see, and I think that helped me. Um, I want to say clairvoyant. Cause that means like you got some type of psychic abilities. I don't have that. I'm not trying to say that at all. Mm-hmm. But my grandma used to tell me I'm, um, I have a spirit of discernment. You know what that means? Yeah. Right. So I act on my feelings. So that might sound intuition. Kind of, right. So you know most people they say, oh, I should have went with my first mind. Well, I listened to my first mind. That's my intuition, mm-hmm. and it helped me get a, a long way. You know, it helped me out a lot tremendously. Most people don't do that. They just go through life totally unaware that they even have that voice. They don't listen to it, so the voice is dumbed down behind all this noise that they have internally. Mm-hmm. I learned how to listen to mine, so it takes precedence over all the noise. Mm-hmm. So other than the, um, the law, you're confronting the law with your drug situation, something else, though, I mean, you could have gone back to it, Right. What else? Stop me from the... Yeah, what else happened that you decided to turn things around? So, so on the federal level, right, they have mandatory minimum guidelines, sentencing guidelines. And what that means is whatever the guidelines say you're supposed to get if you're convicted, that's how much time you get. And basically no judge can overturn that. They, there ain't nothing they can do about it. Mm-hmm. It could be the judge's son. He still got to give you what the law mandates. So 
and they're kind of biased towards people of color, meaning the way the law is written is sort of like you get caught with, say, five grams of crack cocaine, mm -hmm. you'll get five years in prison. Mm -hmm. But if you get caught with, say, 500 grams of powder cocaine, you still get five or ten years in prison. Now, why is that? Now, people that come from my background would say because black people say sell crack, whereas white people sell powder to the black people to turn into crack. So it, it goes deeper than this. We had the, um, the Iran-Contra scandal that happened in the 80s as far as like the American um, government selling drugs and guns on the streets of um, L.A. and California streets, inner city streets, to fund the Contras in the battle against communism in South America. That helped fuel the drug economy not only in California or Oakland or L.A., but throughout the whole United States of America. Mm. And that's a whole nother conversation. Mm. So. Okay. One that I can't contribute much to at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can read about it. Anybody that's listening to this, if they want to know more about that, they can Google it. Yeah. So it was a big thing. What made you start the barbershop? So when I was selling drugs, I wanted to um, stop. But... I wanted to find a way to supplement. I didn't just want to just stop and not have no income, no money coming in. But I had always had this feeling. This is not going to last forever. You need to find something to do legally to make some type of revenue. Mm -hmm. So one day, a couple of my friends were on the block. And one of them actually um, would buy drugs from me. So every day, I'd take him like 18 ounces. That's a, in the streets term, it's called a half a thing. So I'd take him like a half a kilo, and he'd give me the money from the day before. So basically, I'm fronting it to him. So it's like he a worker of mine. And every morning, I come and pick it up. So this one particular morning, I came to pick up my money and drop off some more drugs for him. Him and like two of his friends are sitting on the porch waiting for me, but they're having this conversation about the same thing I was contemplating the night before. Like, I'm tired of selling drugs. I want to move on and do something else. One of them said he was going go to be at, go to school to be an airline uh, mechanic. Another one was talking about working on cars, getting his own garage. And then the guy who I was coming over there for, he said, and he was joking, I think, because he never followed through on it, but it resonated with me. And he said, I'm going to go to barber college because I'm tired of the guy who cut my hair from my head up. <laughs> so then I thought, I was like, man, I used to like cut my friend's hair when I was in high school. So I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do that. So, so when I left there, I got the money that he, that he gave me, paying me for the drugs or whatever. And then I left and I went to the barber college and I paid to go to barber college. I went in there. I liked what I was hearing and paid and I started the next week. So I just really wow. put it into action just that quick. So... While I was in barber college, I was trying to make that transition from selling drugs to becoming a legal tax-paying citizen. And then my whole world just came crumbling down about a year later. Did you already start the barbershop, though, then? That's crazy. You asked that because I actually had this building. So the landlord stays in the, lives in the back. They have a house in the back, right? And she actually remembered me. Once I finally got my shit together, I went to prison, did my time, came home, and my wife was passing by and said, you ain't going to believe this. And I'm like, what? She 
called me on the phone. She said the shop, the first shop you had before you caught your case, it's a sign said for lease. I said, for real? She said, yeah. So she went and got the information. And then I called the lady and she, she remembered me. I came over, sat down with her and filled out the paperwork and I've been here ever since. So you started here. You are actually opened a barbershop. You started. Well, I didn't open it yet. I had acquired the lease. Oh, yeah. And I started working on the building to get it ready to become a barbershop. Gotcha. In the middle of me doing that, in the midst of me doing that, I ended up getting incarcerated. And I, had, I was in the fight of my life. So I remember my grandfather used to tell me, he used to tell me, son, Trouble is so easy to get into and so difficult to get out of. And I never really understood he talk, what he was talking about because I never really got in trouble. I always thought I was smarter than everybody <laughs> until you get caught up and you get behind that wall. Yeah. So, um, but when I had to sit down, I remember him saying that. So I caught this case came about in 1996, Christmas Day. I didn't actually put it behind me until... September 19th, 2007, a whole 11 years. Wow. And during that time from 96 to 2007, man, it was so much strife and headache and pain and sorrow. But you weren't in prison and not the just whole for time. Me. No, I wasn't in prison the whole time. I didn't actually go to prison until 2001. 2002. You were fighting the whole time before. Yeah, the case went my case actually went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And then when it came down, the judgment came down, the, the court clerk filed it away wrong. So that buyed me like about another two years of freedom on the streets. But then what happened was, you remember, um, I don't know if you, you probably do, in 1999, they was like saying, oh, Y2K, um, computers gonna take over, all the computers gonna shut down, we're not gonna have no PG&E, no gas know anything because computers is running everything and they don't know how to click over from 99 to the zeros or what I'm like man y'all sound stupid I never believed in that but people were actually believing in that and what happened was according to what my lawyer told me that the judicial system I imagine all across the country and maybe the world went from paper to filing away online like actually having files on the computer instead of files sitting in a basement somewhere. Uh -huh. And before they can just dismiss any type of case or file or docket number or whatever, it go before a panel of three judges. And they go over and review each individual case to see if it merits them throwing it out. Oh, this is over with, a statute of limitations passed, or this person was found innocent or what have you, mm. and they throw it away and destroy it, right? But when mine went before the panel of judges, it's like, wait a minute, hold on. He lost. Why is this guy isn't incarcerated? <laughs> so DEA, they came and got me, and then it started up again, and mm -hmm. I ended up having to take some time. Mm -hmm. So. This is interesting how you started. I, I watched this. First you cut around, yeah. and now it's blended all in. Yeah, you never seen nobody cut a head, cut a head before? I've never been in the barbershop. What? My first time in the barbershop. What? Okay. <laughs> That's a good thing, I guess. And in East Oakland. I love in it. East Oakland, yeah. right. You recording now? I'm recording. <laughs> I always record. Are these some sound mics for you? Do you... Has ever anything happened here? Have you ever seen any, like, a, a shooting or... Um... Because I know stuff happens here. We're on International Boulevard. Right. Um... 
I haven't actually seen anything per se, but um, a lot of different things that have that's happened. As far as in my shop, no. Mm. I never had an issue. One time, um, somebody came off in here acting like they was about to rob the shop. Mm. And um, it just so happened that the guy knew me. And it was him and another guy. And they came off in here. to. The, I was sitting down eating my lunch. And I seen them running across the street with their hoodies pulled down over their head. So I got up and I tried to kick the door shut, but my foot missed the door. So by that time, he's in the doorway. So I grabbed him. He had his hand in his um, hoodie like this yeah. with the gun. So I grabbed him and I can feel like he had a gun for real. And when I grabbed him, he's tussling and trying to get away from my grip. So I thought, but what he really was doing was pulled his hoodie off and was like, Dre, it's me. It's me. And then he turned around to his boy that was behind him, and his boy had the gun out, he was about to like cap me, like shoot me. He said, no, 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 this is my boy, this is my boy. He didn't say that, but I ain't gonna say what he actually said. He's, but he said, that's my boy, that's my boy. And then the guy put the gun up and he looking at me, he mugging me like he wanted to do something to me. And then the guy turned around and he said, Dre, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I'm out here, I'm on one, I'm sick. He, he um, used heroin. So he was sick, him and his boy. So they just out looking for an easy lick and they figuring like, oh, they go to barbershop, it's a bunch of people in there. We go in there, lay everybody down, and then we go about our business and get our fix or whatever. But when he came and he realized it was me, he basically shut it down, gave me a pass. He cried in the doorway, gave me a hug, blowing snot all out his nose and everything. <laughs> I got it all on my shoulder. And then they left, went around the corner, robbed the people around the corner, came running back past my shop. The people that was in my shop, one guy said, I'm glad you my barber, because all I had was the money for the haircut and the extra $5 to get me something to eat. If they would have took that, I wouldn't have had no haircut and nothing to eat. So that's wow. the only thing that ever really happened in my shop that could have possibly been uh, detrimental. Oh, my God. In the middle of the day, too. Yeah, it was broad daylight. It probably was like 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. But the neighborhood changed, though, dramatically. It ain't like that anymore. It's mm -hmm. totally different. I mean, it's still that element, but I see people. All right, so this area of Oakland right here, this is called, this is referred to as Deep East Oakland. So... Anybody that's familiar with Oakland, they know that deep east Oakland, that's where shit go down at. Like, it can happen. You can get robbed. You can get murdered. You can, you can go buy some drugs. You can sell drugs. You, you can get a prostitute. You can get anything, right? And that's how it traditionally been for years. And now, the area is being like, well, the whole city's being gentrified. So now I come here. I was just telling somebody this the other day. Um, somebody might need me to be here at, say, 7 o'clock in the morning for an appointment to cut their hair. And I see a white guy with his shirt off jogging past my shop. Now, at first I thought it was a fluke. The next week, I'm here cutting somebody's hair. Same white guy, right? Now, I don't care about the white guy jogging by. He could have been purple for all I care. But the only reason why I bring that up, his color or his race, is because this area has been traditionally Hispanic and black. 
It's a generations. sign of change. It's a it, sign of change. Exactly. And yeah. Oakland from the west, the north, and now the east has been heavily gentrified. Like I don't I haven't been downtown in years, but then I went downtown one time about a year ago. I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize none of the people. Nobody looked like me. Everybody were white. And they were walking around like they didn't have a care in the world, right? And I think that's the problem that most people of color that are traditionally born and raised in Oakland have a problem with, that the people that's coming in now, they like mad at them basically because, I can't really say why they mad, but from what my understanding, what I think is because they don't have a care in the world, so to speak, and they buying up everything. But to me personally, I feel as though, um, why wouldn't you? If you if you had the money to buy something and you can take advantage of a situation, why wouldn't you? I know I would, so I ain't mad at them. To me, it's good because I own property, and and the more that they that the change comes, the more my property elevates. So I'm all about elevation, so I don't care. Where's your property at around here or everywhere? So I have, I have a couple in Brookfield, and then I have one in my neighborhood. Um, I have a couple of properties on 88th Avenue, and then um, the home that I live in as well. And they're all rental? Yeah. yeah. The one I live in is not, obviously, but the, all the other ones are rental income. So. so you didn't get into the flip, house flip situation? I flipped a couple of properties, but... I wouldn't even really consider it a flip. Um, I mean, I made good profit off of it, but I wouldn't consider it a flip because I actually, like, lived in it. You know what I'm saying? So a flip in the traditional sense is I bought this house with the intentions to sell it. Mm. I bought this house. I wanted to eventually sell it, but I was going to live in it, and I did that intentional because I knew by me living in it, if you live in a house for, um, I think it's two years, then when you sell it, if you're married, in which case I am, as far as capital gains go, anything under 500 grand, half a mil, I don't have to pay tax on. Mm. And if I'm single, it's a quarter of a mil, 250,000. If I lived in it, but I had, the qualifications is you must have lived in it, it must have been your residence for two years mm. prior to the sale. Mm. So my whole thing was, I didn't want to pay tax, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy the property, I'm gonna get the benefits of living in it, and then I take it a step further sometimes. Like I did one property, I lived in it, and then I refinanced with a cash out option. Mm. So I got the money from that, and then eventually I sold it. And when I went over, say, 500000 as far as the profit margin, then it minimized exactly how much I had to pay in taxes because I refined with a cash out mm. option before. You see what I'm saying? So if I put out 150000 and then say I sold the property and I made uh, $550,000 or whatever. You subtract that one fifty dollars from that and now I'm not on the hook. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> I follow. So, right. So it's for, me, I, it, for me, I'm in it for the long haul. So now I, I just, I haven't really bought anything since um, 2012 or 13. Why not? It's, I, I'm hearing the market is kind of flattening a little bit. Is that true? I haven't really checked, but I know as far as like in Oakland, the rents are off the hook. So um, I have a property right now that I'm renovating and it's a three bedroom. It's only like maybe a thousand square feet if that, 
but for that little home for rent I can get 3200 a month Sweet. and I own that property free and clear I was gonna ask so you don't pay on no it no mortgage at all on it so that's pure passive income that I can live off of that I don't have to work for right so I don't know anywhere else that I can probably do that maybe in New York San Francisco for sure but most places throughout the country rent's not that high like the guy who was just in here with the hypothetical scenarios <laughs> he owned like eight properties in Kansas and he mm -hmm. uh, right but the rent out there same property three bedrooms his like 900 square feet he only get 850 a month yeah I used to live in Texas it was the same right you can rent a three-bedroom house and you pay $1,200 right yeah so, <laughs> so I don't know but um, what I what I plan on getting off into is putting ADUs like accessible dwelling units on the back of the um, properties that I have existing because it's cheaper. I already own the land, and I can build in the backyard. Say, may, maybe I make a, a in-law unit. Maybe I make it a two-bedroom. Maybe I make a duplex or a triplex if the if the plot is big enough. Mm. And that's where. You can get off into say the same property that I'm renovating right now. Say I put a duplex back there, two three bedroom one bath units, right? Now a property that I was only getting three grand a month from, now all of a sudden I'm getting nine thousand a mm -hmm. month from, and that's where you. But get, would the people living in the house be okay with people living in the backyard? I don't care. Oh. It don't matter because I'm an owner. So if they don't want to, if they don't want to um, live there anymore, then they can just move. Right. And then I'll be able to find someone else who want to live there. Yeah. So you, but you, you have a valid point though. In order for this ecosystem to work, every all components have to be in agreement one way or another. <laughs> but I had the final say. It's, it's, you have options when you own something. There's value in ownership. Yeah. So I believe that people should own their things instead of renting their things. Mm -hmm. Are all your clients repeat clients? A majority of them. Yeah. Not. I make it kind of difficult for people to get cut by me. Why? Because I, I feel like I've been in this this business for 25 years. Um, I basically can pick and choose who I want to cut and who I don't want to cut. If I feel like it's going to be too much of a headache or a hassle dealing with a certain individual, then I won't cut them. I have actually banned people from my shop. <laughs> Why is it because they don't pay or I'm like, just... you gonna pay me, but <laughs> everybody come here. I, don't, I ain't never had that issue. But the thing is, I, I really believe in protecting your mental mind more than anything, because if your mind goes to hell, then shit, you go to hell. Yeah. Not in a literal sense, but you know, as far as like um, losing your mind and too much stress can cause you to lose your mind. So if someone, they're not helping me grow, spiritually, physically, mentally. Like bringing you down, right, talking negative. They, or... they always got this dark cloud over them every time they come here. Um, they're always talking about people behind their back. Then I don't really want to be too much involved with that. Usually people come here, um, they be real laid back, they cool. We, we, we have conversations along financial matters, credit, real estate, and starting a business. How do you start a business? How do you get a business license? Things of that nature. And people have like problems maybe at home, relationship problems. We talk about that. And 
it just be a cool like setting. Like how long I've been cutting you out here? Since like oh wait, how old were you then? Nineteen. How old are you now? Thirty one. Thirty one. So I cut people right now, um, that that are in their thirties and they got kids and they bring their kids now. And I cut one guy, he was bringing his son when he was two. Now his son is like twenty something and he has a son, he brings his son. I cut three generations. That's a blessing though, but I feel like when you come here to get your haircut, it's more than just a haircut. You're going to get some type of knowledge, some type of that good game. Is it, is it people asking you for that knowledge, or you just talk, you just initiate the conversation? I used to, but now they ask, and it's like, I can't shut them up. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably feel that way about me. He don't never shut them. But they, they come through here based on what they know from me, because they, I've been cutting so many people for so many years. They see like the different strides I done made in my life mm -hmm. and they want that in their life. So they be like, well, you've been there, you've done that. So you know what it takes. So how can I do this? And then that's when, you know, I guess I'll go into the role of mentorship, I guess. I don't really like saying that, but I, I don't Why know. Why not? Where, it's great. Right. So it, it, it feel good. But, um, do you have people that have actually taken your advice and have done something with it? Yeah. Um, couple of people bought properties based on the information that I gave them. Sweet. Right, so I feel like it's very beneficial, for real, and I don't know, a lot of, and a lot of people can't handle the truth, though. I'm real big on the truth. I How might so? say something that'll rub you the wrong way, because people don't like smelling other people's shit, but when you tell them about their shit, they don't like the smell of that either. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I can see something that you don't see about yourself because whatever protection mechanism that you have or barrier you have set up internally and it won't allow you to see the bullshit that you're shoveling. But everybody else can see it. And they might not have the balls to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. I and remember most, that from you. And most people don't like that. <laughs> it's hard for them to deal with that. But they don't have a problem with verbally telling you how they see you. Mm. But when it's time for you to say something, well, why are you attacking me? You just verbally slapped me. You think I ain't going to tell you what it really is as it relates to you, too? You got to be able, if you be able to dish it out, you got to be able to take it. Have you scared people away like that? Yeah, there's been a few people. They won't come back. But <laughs> that's okay. Because yeah. for every person that don't come, God sent me three more. Yeah. For real. So I've been in this business a long time. And... I don't have to be here cutting hair. I just love cutting hair and I like the people. I like cutting like Javier. He always calling me like 6.30. I don't even want to be here at 6.30, but I do it for him. Probably he works all day. <laughs> can't come any earlier. <laughs> oh yeah, that's why. Yeah. He, he can't come any earlier, but he good. He'll never give me no problem. See, he ain't said nothing. He ain't said two words since you've been here. <laughs> And he like that when the mic not on. <laughs> so then who does the talking? You? <laughs> Usually, or it'd be quiet, or the TV just be on. If it, if he say something, I know it's some real shit. So like when I had, I renewed my vows for my 20th wedding anniversary. Oh yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. Right. He got an invite. And he came. I was surprised. I didn't think he was going to come. Hmm. 
Cause he don't really talk too much. He do everything in silence. But he came with his girl. Nice. And I really liked it that. When was that? That was in September last year. Yeah. Did you have a party? Yeah, we had a. How was it, Navier? Was it nice? Yeah, it was, it was nice. <laughs> yeah, my wife planned everything. Where was it? Um, we rented a place or something? Yeah, we rented out this place in Brentwood. Um, I forget the name of the place. In I ain't gonna forget how much it cost. But <laughs> 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 well, I forget I forget the name of it. But it was a, it was a very nice location. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna ask you. You were married before you get into prison. Didn't you say earlier she came to visit you? Or? Yeah, she was a visit. We was married. Yeah. Yeah. When the case first came about. We wasn't married. She was just, we were just seeing each other. Yeah. She'd say we were boyfriend and girlfriend, but I wouldn't say that. Of course not. You didn't want to right. come I was, to... I was with everybody. I was everybody's boyfriend, I guess. <laughs> you were a different person back then. Yep. Very different. What changed in the um, relationship aspect? She, she really loved me. So I was, I was dealing with so many different women. They was with me for the wrong reason. She was with me for the right reason. She really loved me. When did you see that, though? It took me um, losing everything. Mm. So I amassed a little bit of ghetto richness, hood fame, and yeah. a lot of people coming up in a depressed area such as Oakland back then, um, they would be easily influenced by shiny things like cars, jewelry. I never really was into jewelry though. Or if you got like a reputation, everybody know who you are. You got the reputation for the wrong thing though. So people want to be a part of that. And you can go where you want to go, eat at whatever restaurant. And it feels good, right? To have that kind of good. attention. Right. So yeah, I had a lot of females that wanted that type of attention. I thought she was just like everybody else. But when everything left and it was no more Flights to Las Vegas, no more luxury cars, no more this or that. Gifts and, yeah. Yeah. She was the only one that stayed. And it went from me basically paying for everything to her paying for everything. Um. And she stayed. And she, she wasn't, like, bitter about it. She wasn't, like, playing, like, big me, little you, like... Yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. It was none of that. Mm. You know, everything was based on us. So I was like, damn, she really loved me. She stuck around. Most people wouldn't. They'd, they'd be out like, you know what? You ain't worth all this. I'm gone. I really wouldn't let you anyway. That's what you, like my grandpa used to tell me. If you want to know how somebody really feel about you, you get them mad or you get them drunk. They're going to tell the truth either way. Yeah. So My grandma said the same thing. Right. <laughs> Grandmas have their wisdom. Right, exactly. <laughs> so she she kept it all the way solid with me. Nice. All right, I'm here. Thank you.